Robert Hodgkin. Darren Stott. How you be? I'm doing great, man. And I'm doing even better because I'm seeing your smiling face. It's always good to see you. You, you too. You too. We, and we had a, we had an opportunity to kind of catch up on the phone the other day. And we we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We need to, we need to do this. We need to do this live. Like we need to dive into some stuff. And, and because there's so much going on and uh and, and i always love our conversations i mean we get we get into some stuff and so thanks for thanks for making time in your schedule i know you're up to a lot over there yeah things are busy but hey you know this is what it's all about connecting with friends and connecting with good people out there that can make a difference in the world right now hey man like super tricky year right like just with yeah, oh my gosh with uh, ministry and just um, just everything, ministry, the economy, health and wellness, all all, all of that. Uh, so, bro, how has ministry changed for you guys this year? I mean, you're you're set up super well for media, right? Um, but like, yeah. like how how have you guys had to really like position yourself, especially like in your new groove? Because you're really in a groove over there, and so. Um, uh, what is that? What is that? What, what do these new patterns kind of look like? What's kind of the new normal for the, for the moment? Yeah, well, you know, what's cool is we didn't even fully realize it, but God was positioning us for this season before we came into it. Because the newest thing for us is we're busier than ever. You know, we, we hear all the people who, and I know there's a lot of people out there that are really facing some challenges right now because of lockdown, because of shutdown, because of not being able to go to work, all of that. And we're praying for them and we're believing for breakthrough and we know God can show up for them. We have experienced sort of the opposite. Things have changed. I'm not getting on airplanes every week and flying to places, but we actually, between our studio um, in Maricopa um, and then also our home setups, like I'm doing this from my home office, we the new normal is this. The new normal is doing whether it's online conferences or streaming media to get words out to people even quicker. And what's great is early on in this, God reminded me of all the words about, um, you know, stadium, stadiums filled with people hearing the word, worshiping God. And I feel like we're seeing the first fruits of that, Darren. Like we're seeing the cyber version of that, where, you know, for me, I'd go in an event and <clears throat> a good sized event for me to be 300, 500 people. You know, occasionally, occasionally I'd be in an event with a thousand people. Oftentimes I'd be at an event with 60, 70 people. So now almost every streaming media we do, whether it's generated by our ministry or I'm a guest or an interviewee on somebody else's, thousands of people we can connect with, we can encourage, we can empower, we can help refocus on how to be a solution and how to be focused on God as opposed to um, um, being undone by the challenges we're all facing. Man, that's so good. You know, it's like, that's so good. Like just the whole stadium thing, 
and media. Um, you, well, as you know, we did uh, a testimony video of the testimonies from CHOP when our team went in there. Yeah. And that testimony video, last I looked, was well over 100,000 uh, uh, views. Go. And the thing about that is that the Seahawks Stadium here um, only seats around, I think, 70,000 people. And I, I mean, I can't even imagine going into the Seahawks Stadium right. and telling those testimonies to everybody there. But that that's what and that was just one of the two videos. I don't know what the second video is at, but it was it was trailing behind super close. And uh, so it's absolutely incredible. You know, all the time, whenever I go anywhere, I hear people talking about, man, what you guys did at CHOP or, you know, that was that was. Yeah, uh, that was that was crazy. And like and that was all through all through media. And so, you know, a lot of people think a lot of Christians think a lot of ministries think. That it's like in this time you got to be negative in order to get people's attention. Like it's like the controversy is what's what what will get the views. But man, what we saw was that people are desperate for good news right now. People are desperate. They are for testimonies. I'll tell you, I don't think you need to be negative at all because that's not the kingdom. The kingdom's good news. Um, I think you do need. I think what will help you is to be topical. And I can speak for me personally and like my show Heroes Arise that we've been doing. We're coming up on episode 100 next week. So we've been doing it for a little while. Um, And the first year or so, you know, getting our feet, figuring out how to do it. It was always good kingdom content. And, you know, we'd average probably anywhere as the show went out live. We'd average anywhere from probably 3,000 to 5,000 views on a good show. But since we in lockdown, what the Lord put on my heart was to directly address topical issues, current event issues, but to bring a kingdom perspective of empowerment in that. And we have seen that our reach really increase, sometimes three, five, even 10 times. So I think this idea of you have to be negative is a lie. Because we're not, it's not the negative news of the kingdom. It's the good news of the kingdom. It's not the ignore the challenges news of the kingdom. It's the good news in the midst of the challenges for you and for everyone around you. Jesus didn't come to the lost and say, man, I got some bummer news for you, bro. No, it was, hey, I am bringing you good news that all the darkness, all the sin, even though Satan's got the keys to the earth right now, I am here to set you free. You want freedom. That's why every single person you went to in CHOP, on some level, they want change. And that's why they were either um, quietly protesting or, or, or riotously, lawlessly protesting. Something in them is unsettled. And even the ones people out there thinking, no, they're just rabble rousers. They're just puppets. They're just... Something in them is unsettled enough to be a rabble rouser. Something in them is unsettled enough to think throwing a brick through a window, even for selfish reasons, is going to meet a need for me. The good news of the gospel needs to be declared topically and strategically in truth with no compromise of love and light and life, because that's what will reach even the ones who are the most lawless in those situations. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. You're absolutely right. I mean, Jesus, you know, I think a lot of people think that whenever Jesus would get super bummed out, that's when he would take his phone out and go live. Like, hey, guys, Jesus of Nazareth here. I am I am disgusted right now. And so in this video, we're going to be talking about uh, why all Pharisees are hypocrites. I want everyone to share. We're going to fill this room up and then I'm going to be riffing for the next hour on Pharisees and why they bum me out. <laughs> You know, in, in Luke 9, 
James and John want to do that? They're basically saying, Jesus, want us to go live right now and call down the fire on the on the Samaritans because they just stink, man. And Jesus directly addresses that spirit by saying, you don't know what spirit you're of. The son of man did not come to destroy men, but to save them. I get that the Samaritans were offended and didn't receive us. And that's hard because you're tired and hungry. But what I'm concerned about is a spirit of offense stole a visitation of me from them. I want to give them everything that I am. You, you've taken a spirit of offense. You're in offense because of that spirit of offense. You can't call down fire like Elijah did. Elijah called down fire for Israel, not against Israel. You can't fight offense with offense. We've come to save, not to destroy. Let's go live with that, guys. <laughs> come on. That is so good. Come on. Hey, you know, we were talking the other day and you were you're sharing with me that there are some patterns that you're seeing right now within the church that we just can't afford to engage with. And and um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you had framed it something along the lines of eight mistakes that the church can't afford to make. And I thought I thought it'd be fun to kind of dive into this, uh, some of these patterns and things that you're seeing. That, that, that are kind of like, uh, that are a little concerning and, and are an opportunity for us to kind of upgrade. And, yeah. you know, that's one of the fun things about hosting conversations like this is that anytime, anytime we can get a new thought, it's like anytime we can come into agreement with something that previously we wouldn't have been in agreement with, that's an active form of repentance. And then when we come into agreement with truth, and we and we decide to disengage with a lie that we had been subconsciously engaging with at that moment we upgrade and so man i believe that people as they're as they're listening to this today the people are going to upgrade and disengage yeah. with some subconscious defeaters that have been and uh, keeping them held up and that that we're going to see a lot of freedom as a result of this conversation so yeah man why don't you dive in like these these eight mistakes that the yeah. church can't afford to make in this time Right on. Let me give a little prophetic context so people understand where we're coming from. And very quickly, even before we went live, we were talking about how uh, we remember that last year there were so many words about 2020 will be a year of clarity of vision. And I think some of the reason people are upset, frustrated, disappointed, disgusted, depressed, whatever it is, is they're like, hey, what happened to that promise? And so often we need to remember that we know in part, I actually believe all those words about 2020 being a, a, a year of clarity of vision were spot on. That was not the word I had for 2020, but I heard a lot of those words and I want to honor those prophets because I think it was spot on. The only thing I think we need to consider is that is that one of the things God is allowing us to see clearly with 2020 vision is what the enemy is doing. Oh. And I don't think we were expecting that. I think we were expecting to clearly see the kingdom coming, the heavens open, revival, reformation. But often to see that revival and reformation, we need to first be aware of what the enemy is doing in fullness so we can stand against it. I believe prophetically the church is in an Exodus 14 moment. I believe prophetically we are being presented with an Exodus 14 opportunity that is historic. We have a historic and epic opportunity before us. But just like Exodus 14, when the enemy was clearly seen coming against the people of God, how we respond is critical. Because if we respond like most of the church or Israel or the people of God, whatever you want to call them, did, most of them responded by murmuring, complaining, being negative, 
having their eyes so on the enemy that they gave into fear. They started murmuring, complaining about Moses, attacking each other, giving a place to the accuser, the brethren. They even wanted to go back and eat the food of bondage. They said, let's go back to Egypt. At least we had leeks and onions. That was because in the clarity of vision of the enemy, they didn't understand God's purposes. All they saw was the enemy. Moses, with a little bit of adjustment from God, becomes the solution that we can be in this hour. He remembers who God is, remembers what God had promised him in Exodus 3, remembers how God had empowered him, and he stands to be the solution. Co-labor with God be the solution. Not only does the sea part and the people of God cross over into the promised land, which is what we're going to do, but when you read Exodus 14 closely, the whole thing was a divine setup so that the enemy could be completely, utterly, and totally destroyed. We are seeing the enemy clearly on full display in our country right now, both overtly, like Goliath strutting around, mocking, taunting, um, intimidating the, the people of God coming against the agenda of God. We can see the Hamans behind the scenes scheming and scamming to overthrow. We see lawlessness, corruption, greed, you name it. But the reason we're seeing it so clearly is because God wants us to stand against it so it can be utterly destroyed. And the eight mistakes that we can't afford to make right now is because it's all about responding like Moses did in the sense of um, being able to be part of the solution as opposed to, for understandable reasons, getting mired in the muck and the fear because we're only looking at the enemy. So in this season, when we can clearly see the enemy, we must remember who God is and who we are. And there's eight mistakes we need to avoid. And the first one I want to jump into kind of couches all of them. And the Lord spoke this to me, gosh, about three weeks ago now. He said, you cannot afford to be disappointed in this season. You cannot afford to be disappointed in the world, in government, in the church, or even in yourself because when you get when you give place to disappointment, you literally disappoint yourself. You take yourself out of your appointment and position as a dominion steward and solution bringer in the earth. And I've seen this in the church where we're disappointed with the debate the other night. So we're just going to check out or we're disappointed in the riots in the street or we're disappointed in this or we're disappointed in the church. I'm seeing the church attack one another right now where, like you said, some people are saying you got to be negative. You got to bring a judgment word. God's, you know, you got to do that. And others saying, no, it has to be this. It has to be that. We need to listen to each other, have these conversations so we can come into a consensus of wisdom and unity in a multitude of counselors. There's wisdom, but we can't afford to give place to disappointment, not because there's not disappointing things, but when we choose to be disappointed and it is a choice, I can choose to be disappointed in the debate the other night, or I can choose to say, I want to see the tenor and tone of my nation change. So I'm going to change my tenor and tone in how I talk to my family, how I talk about the election, how I talk about the nation, how I talk about people in the church I don't agree with. I can't afford to be disappointed because when I'm disappointed, I murmur, I complain, I attack, I do everything that was a wrong response in Exodus 14 and take myself out of the appointment that I'm being presented with in Exodus 14 moments to be a Moses who stands with God on behalf of God, stands for truth in the character of nature of him who is truth and becomes a difference maker. Oh, that's so good, Robert. That's so, so, so good. And you're spot on in regards to disappointment in the church in this year and just how, how everything is in the fire right now. Right. And 
when you were talking, I was even thinking about um, really uh, idolatry and this place of any time we put our hope in a because and I love how Tim Keller approaches the the conversation of idolatry and functional saviors yes. and how oftentimes we have functional saviors and that is the the thing the first thing we turn to when when there's disappointment. And what I wonder is if if our if our functional saviors are coming into the light this year, meaning that we have professed we have professed Jesus as Lord, and yet when everything starts to get shaken, we actually see the first thing that we cling to, and that first thing that we cling to when it gets removed from us. So if the first thing we cling to is our financial security, and then all of a sudden our financial security is being threatened. Now there's, now there's disappointment there, right? And it's right. Like, 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 as you were saying, if we engage with disappointment, what happens is we, we begin to open that door to fear. And, and all of a sudden, like, it's like, like there, there's all the questions of, you know, what if we're not going to make it? What if we're going to lose our home? And then it's, yeah. and, and it's just yeah. a, a rabbit hole that just takes you into such despair. And so, um, when you were talking about that, I just thought, yeah, absolutely. And, to actually see perhaps disappointment as an opportunity to to allow Holy Spirit to reveal our functional saviors so that we can repent, break alliance and say, it is in God that I trust and I'm going to keep my appointment. I love what you were saying about dis- disappointment, that that's the enemy trying to remove our appointments. Like the enemy is trying to go to our daytimer this year and remove all yeah. of our remove all of our inheritance from from the schedule. Like inheritance and encounter and divine opportunity and the enemy's trying to go through our, our daytime this year and just remove it. Like God's not going to show up. This isn't a year when God's going to show. This isn't a year when God's going to do miracles. This isn't a year when people are going to get saved. This is a year when we, you know, we vote Republican. We, we hope it goes well for us. Right. Like, like, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, such a good word, Robert, such a good word. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, the scripture that I'd frame this in is Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7, because what happens when we give place to disappointment is we have leaned on our own understanding. And Proverbs 3 says, don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge God in all your ways. Trust him with all your heart, and he'll make your path straight. And you nailed it. What that really is revealing is, you know, whether it's my understanding is my functional savior, or even things like, for your example, the financial thing, I know people that will praise God all day long that the reason they have financial abundance is because of him, but they don't realize that it's suddenly shifted to now my security is my $4 million in the bank that God blessed me with, as opposed to God who blesses me no matter what. So I think you nailed it with that. That's awesome. The second uh, mistake we can't afford to make right now, Darren, is thinking that God wants to punish and destroy. And we already touched on this a little bit because you were like, oh, we got to go negative. And the reason I bring this up, the pattern I'm seeing is that there are people, what I'm seeing is the anger of man trying to achieve the righteousness of God. And let's just use California example. It's very easy to point to California. It's a, it's a, it's a state that has given place to a lot of sin, a lot of negativity, uh, or negative non-gospel messages through Hollywood. You know, Governor Newsom has made some decisions that it's easy to point to that say, hey, not pro-church, not pro-God. And that's all true. And God wants to bring conviction and correction but God does not want to punish and destroy. And I'm seeing where we are connecting with a true word, like all those warning dreams that came out. 
you know, I get why people were freaked out by him. They were freaky. But when I checked in with God on it, this is the message he gave me. My tone has changed because I'm trying to get my people's attention. But this is key. He said, my tone has changed, but tell my people my heart has not changed. So just like we talked about in Luke 9, Jesus wants to say to the disciples, I'd love to bring correction to this situation so that I can give myself to the Samaritans fully, not to destroy them because I'm mad because they've rebelled against me. So we need to know that what God has been doing with all the prophetic warnings is they were like an alarm clock. He showed me he's trying to wake us up. Not wake us up so we'll condemn, not wake us up so we'll duck and cover, but wake us up so we can grab hold of the Exodus 14 moment and become part of the solution. If we start to think God wants to destroy or God is mad, then all of a sudden now we are doing what you talked about. We become negative as opposed to in a world of negative situations become a positive influence. This is the example he gave me. An alarm clock is only an irritant. An alarm clock is only a problem if you're not willing to wake up, if you want to stay asleep. And then, you know, you're putting the pillow over your head and you're swatting at the alarm clock. But those dreams and those prophetic warnings are an alarm clock. So they're only something to be an irritant, a problem or, or, or to be scared of if we're not willing to wake up and take our position. And one of the main ways we do that is by realizing God does want reformation. He wants revival. He wants correction, but he doesn't want to destroy. He wants to save. And now we bring forth those corrective words in love unto salvation, knowing this is a serious, urgent hour, a critical hour where we need to see some shifts, but it's a proactive voice to shift from a tone change. It's not a condemning, destructive, God's mad at you. Who's going to respond to yeah, your heavenly father is really mad at you and he wants to destroy you. If, if you knew, if something in you rose up in you and you knew you'd done wrong, if one of your kids knew, oh, I completely rebelled against mom and dad, and one of their friends comes to them and says, man, your parents are so angry at you. Your parents hate you. Your parents are going to whoop your hide. You may not be in a hurry to get home. But if a friend comes up to you and says, you know, your parents don't like what you did, but they love you so much and they actually want to help you in this situation. You're going to all of a sudden realize I really do want to go home right now and connect with my mom and my dad because I need some help. That's the message we need in this hour, not one of destruction and punishment, but, but one of even in judgment, judgment under salvation, judgment under reformation and revival. Man, Robert, that's so good. And I would actually love to go a little deeper into that if that's if that's okay. I know that Let's we have, do it. I know we have eight that we have to discuss, and so I don't want to go too long with it. But um but we can always do a part two or part three. You know That's right. <laughs> but uh hey, it's our show. We'll, we do whatever we want. So um our sponsors will be agreeable. Um so I think that there's a couple of reasons for this. And one would be because of the the uh, a classic theological tone that has been set within the church of Old Testament angry God, New Testament loving God. Um, and the other thing would be is, um, so that you have a theological factor that is huge, uh, and even a, a, a training or even a, a subconscious training that we come into just as children if you were born into the church. And uh, certainly to a great degree, that would be a major cause for why a lot of teenagers backslide in the church mm. and then never re return back to the church 
because they begin to discover the humanity of their own parents, the, the, what they might call the hypocrisy of the church. So they've been given a law and a standard of righteousness that as little legalistic children coming up into the church felt good and safe. And then there's a, there's a coming of age moment when you begin to see truth. And, and then there is a, there is a moment when you have to figure out how are you going to extend grace to the very people that seemed very legalistic up to that point and, and figuring out the forgiveness factor that certainly every person will have to pass a forgiveness test or a love test. And I, so you have this theological thing, but then you also have this, this part of us that if we fail the love test, if we fail the grace test, that doesn't mean that we're not Christians anymore. Um, uh, what, what happens is, is that a lot of us, we will take our Christian philosophy and theology and we will move forward saying that is the problem with the church. That is the problem with preachers. That is the problem with ministers. That is the problem with, you know, and therefore, and, and we've got all this anger because whenever we look at the church, yeah. all we see is the problem. And, and, and I'm an expert on this because this was me. So I, yeah. I'm, I, so I'm not an amateur when it comes to, um, self-righteous judgment. I, I, I was the chief of self-righteous judges, uh, hated preachers, hated preachers, kids, hated the church, never hated God. But like, so I know what I'm talking about right now. And what happens is, is that, so, so I rebelled against the system. What happens is, is that other people don't rebel against the system. They stay in the system, but they harbor um, they har mm. they harbor the resentment and the bitterness, and then what happens is that all of their ministry um, it comes through a filter of resentment and bitterness, and they've got this chip on their shoulders against the church, yeah. against ministers. But what happens is that they come into a place of ministry, and then they 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 begin to impose their anger against God. So they are not exp expounding on; they are not unpacking the truth and the revelatory nature of who God is. Instead, what they're doing is they're imposing their own issues onto God, almost projecting their own issues onto God. And then they begin to, uh, re they begin to attract a tribe where there's resonance or a familiar spirit. And, mm -hmm. and, and it's really, really, so this is why healing is so important. This is why soul healing is so important. This is why, for, for all of us, I mean, once a year, I meet with prophetic ministers who dive into my issues with me and, because I know that like, it's not the issues you know about that get you. It's the stuff you That's don't right. see um, yeah. that gets you. So I think it's really interesting. There's a theological shift right now. It's not new information. It's, it's the honoring of the complete book. It's the honoring of Genesis all the way to Revelation. And it's this place of that that when it looks like God has, when it looks like we have a bipolar God that's completely losing his temper, that's just fed up with humanity, that, 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 that is a misapplication of the word of God. And that any that anytime you look at the Bible is anything other than a love letter. If there's any moment when you say that God has turned off the mercy switch in order to turn right. on the doomsday switch, you have now created God in your own image and likeness. And you are totally, because it, it is a God of, of goodness and severity. And his goodness is seen in his severity. His love is seen in his justice. I love what Bonnie Jones said, the, the, the wife of the late Bob Jones. She says, the judgment of God is the justice of God. 
and the justice of God is the is the executed righteousness of God. And you look at that, and it's really the mercy of God reweaving the fabric of the way things ought to be. Sorry, I got a soapbox there. No, that was awesome. And, you know, if anybody wrestles with that theologically, a couple of points, because I've had conversations with people who are wrestling with exactly what you talk about. And uh, one thing I always say to them is, hey, look, I I get where you're coming from. But remember, we are told, he tells us he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the Old Testament God is the New Testament God. It's when you read the Old Testament through the filter of the New Testament God, you'll see that at worst, what this is, is a loving father who's saying to his children, you keep running out into the street and I've told you not to. And I love you so much. I'm going to take you across my knee for a moment to get your attention because I don't want you to be killed by a car. I mean, at worst, that's what the Old Testament declares, that we have a loving father like that. The other thing I'll point out is if you think that the world is too dark and too given over to sin, and it's pretty dark and given over to sin, but for God to want to save it, I remind you when the whole world was given over to sin, all of creation was under the curse and the devil actually had the keys to this realm. Mm. Jesus came to save, not to destroy So we're not quite that bad yet. So even if you think God's plan and personality can change and it doesn't, but even if you think it does, we are not, use that as your yardstick because we're not that bad yet. Jesus still rules and reigns, has the keys, won't violate our free will. But when in our free will, everything was given over and the devil had the keys to this realm, Jesus came to save, not to destroy. Uh, So good. So good. And Robert, one more thing. I'm so, I don't want to belabor this. No, this is great. This is this is something that concerns me. When I hear people say that the kindness of God has failed in America, and now and now we have to see the severity of God. So the goodness God tried to be good to us, but that has failed, and now it's time for the the severity. And 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 there's there's when when we believe that when we say that what we're actually saying is that we believe that the kindness of God is actually pretty weak. And one of the things that we know is that it's the kindness of God that brings people to repentance. And so I actually wonder if a lot of what we've called uh, judgment has actually been the grace of God. And and a lot of what we've called the grace of God has actually been the judgment of God. And what I mean by that is Romans Romans 1, uh, we see that the judgment of God looks like God releasing humanity into their own depravity. Yeah. No, yeah. I think, you know, when people ask me, we did a whole episode of Heroes Arise on his COVID-19, the judgment of God, because people kept asking me that. And um, I believe what I heard from the Lord is that COVID-19 was a manifestation of James 1, 14 to 15, which is just what you said. And I'm massively paraphrasing, but it says basically when you give in to wicked temptation, when you choose to sin, the result is death and manifestations of death. God did not send COVID-19 to punish us. COVID-19, in my opinion, was a manifestation of our choice to sin because way before powers and principalities empower sin in the earth, sin empowers powers and principalities. We give place to powers and principalities before powers and principalities give place to sickness and disease. Good. 
Okay, we did that one. All right, number three. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, thinking you don't have a part to play in what God wants to do. And this relates very much with the disappointment and allowing yourself to be unappointed is I'm seeing people who understandably are being overwhelmed by what's going on because they're only looking at the darkness and the negative and they're forgetting that they're here for a reason. And the simple way you can know you're part of God's plan is you exist here and now. God does not make mistakes. Since since day six, God's plan has been to have a people in relationship with him who were not only his sons, his bride, his family, his mentees, his disciples, the ones he pours his love and blessings out on, but that we would be his dominion stewards in the earth. And if you exist here and now, all of this may have taken us by surprise, but it hasn't taken God by surprise. And whether you're one or 100, whatever experience, whatever knowledge, whatever perspective you have, God wants to bring you in that into this situation to be the solution. You are not here by chance. You are not meant to be a bystander. We can't leave it to the mighty ones like, you know, the Patricia Kings and and the Bill Johnsons and the, the ones we know are doing great things. Other churches can't look at you in Seattle Revival Center and say, OK, they're doing something. So I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. No, you are a apostolic prophetic model of what we can all be doing. Field the call call. Uh, who feel called to do that. If you do not feel called to go out into the streets, so be it, but pray, you know, and, and the reason I know we can have an impact Darren in the midst of all the darkness is I'll be very real. I'll, I'll name a politician that I pray for regularly because I so disagree with her policies and everything. I I'm not in agreement with Mrs. Pelosi. Um, and the speaker of our house. So I pray for her, not against her. But here's the thing that God reminded me. While her policies, her positions might frustrate me at times, if I get disappointed in that, I'm taken out of my appointment. But I need to be encouraged by the fact that Second Chronicles 7, 4 and Dean doesn't say, if Nancy Pelosi humbles herself and prays and seeks God's face, if an unbelieving person who's fighting for unrighteous things that she wants to see does this. No, it says if my people, if my people humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I'll come and heal the land. Yeah. So if you are a Christian right now, you are part of God's solution according to the template an outline of Second Chronicles seven fourteen. Don't be discouraged, depressed, disappointed, frustrated, or angry at what the unbelievers aren't doing. Realize we shouldn't be disappointed. God told us that darkness would cover the earth and deep darkness the people, but he also said that's not a time to check out. It's a time to arise and shine because we know our light has come and the nations and kings will come to the brightness of our shining. So everybody needs to realize they have a part to play. Don't check out. Check in with God and say, Lord, in addition to prayer, what do you have for me as part of your solution in this hour? Robert, that is so good. And I would just encourage people that the way that this begins is with just one little win. And so the way that momentum is created are just little wins over time. It's kind of like, you know, I'm not a big uh, football guy. You know, but, uh, you know, that's how football games are won. Just a, a yard here, a yard there, and then all of a sudden you get a better play. But uh, don't you think, Robert, that so many times in the kingdom of God, that people get disillusioned or discouraged regarding their own ability to be a dominion steward because they are comparing themselves with, like you just said, comparing themselves to people like Patricia King or Bill Johnson. 
And so everyone, a lot of people think that uh, they begin dreaming into the big, dreaming into the big. And then what that does is that just sets in a, a delay. And then that delay takes us right back to what we already talked about. And that's disappointment. Yeah. And so one of the things that we really have to do in the church is we've got to, I, I, I'm a big planner at SRC. You know, it's usually like, no, we're not doing something tomorrow. We got to plan it out three months or six months, you know. Uh, so I'm not a sporadic guy, but I'm telling you in 2020, if, if you think you're going to plan something out six months, you're kidding yourself because every because every week everything's changing. So in yeah. this year, our strategy is completely changed in Seattle. We don't make plans a month out or two months out. We're making plans two weeks out, and we find that it, man, if we can get if we can get something done in two weeks, you know, first of all, if everything's so radically changed that in two weeks you can't actually do it, and it probably wasn't a very good, you know. But so two weeks gives you enough time. But for people listening, if it's been a long time since you had a win. And if you've got disappointment, disillusionment, man, find another believer, find two believers and just get out and try to have one encounter with one person. Yeah. Just listen yeah. to the Holy Spirit and uh, and just and just get a little win. And it might turn into yep. a, a big win. But if we can just start yep. getting these little wins over time, we can begin to cultivate moment, momentum because, Robert, I love this term that, 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 that you've come up with, this dominion stewards term. And man, if the church keeps delaying this responsibility from Christ to be dominions on the earth, if we keep delaying this because we've got this ridiculous, monumentous ideal of what that yeah. means, you know, when God is giving us opportunities right now, the, if we're faithful with the little, he'll entrust us, us much. Yeah. And, you know, if, if they're thinking, okay, I do want to get out there. Is there anything else I can do? The two main ways we operate as dominion stewards in the earth is through the substance of our faith and the power and responsibility of our free will, Good. choosing righteousness, Good. choosing to be active, choosing to show up. And the substance of our faith helps establish stuff. We have a substance of our faith that if I go out there and I witness to people on the street, I can see salvations or plant seeds. We have the substance of faith that if I choose to pray the word of God, something will happen. And I want to invite everybody listening to go to firewallusa.com where we, you can sign up to be part of our 24 seven prayer initiative every moment of every day until the election. We have people all over the world praying for the USA in this election. You can click join and be a part of that at firewallusa.com. We will give you prayer directives. We will give you um, prayer decrees and prayer points. So it's easy for you. And I want to tell you, there are times I go into my prayer time, my prayer slot, and I am a little discouraged not it never fails not five minutes in as i'm declaring the word of god i realize wait i'm part of the solution god's got this so i really do want to encourage people get involved because even moses made this mistake at first darren as the one in exodus 14 who responded correctly the first thing he says is hey don't freak out don't worry you don't even have to lift a finger god will fight on your behalf the Lord doesn't say it directly, but as in instructions, he, he basically corrects Moses and he's like, hey, no, I want you to lift up, your, stretch forth your hand and your staff. You do need to lift a finger, not because I'm not sovereign, but my sovereign plan is for you guys to be involved in this. And something he told me early on is none of this stuff we're seeing is happening on his watch. It's happening on our watch. That's right. Wow. That doesn't mean he's not there. That doesn't mean he doesn't care. That doesn't mean he's sovereign. It means his sovereign, loving, involved plan is to get us involved as his dominion stewards in the earth, operating with him in his authority by the power of his Holy Spirit to make a difference. Good.
Number And then number four, four ties right in. <laughs> yeah, number four um, ties right into this, thinking your vote doesn't matter. Wow. And this is an area I'm watching uh, 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 Christians start to check out. Even since the debate two nights ago, I've heard people say, oh, my gosh, I don't even know if I can vote for President Trump because he was he wasn't, he, you know, he interrupted. He was he was he was rude. Mr. Biden was rude. And look, I get it. I get it. Um, I understand where you're coming from. But here's the thing. Jesus himself said, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. That obviously was involved with taxes, not an election. But he didn't say, hey, Peter, don't worry about it, man. We're of the kingdom. None of this touches us. No, he's saying be involved, be in the world, but not of the world. Invade the systems of the world, but with kingdom solutions. We don't have to worry. Let's bring a supernatural coin manifestation to the situation. And then sow that aspect of the kingdom, that gold, that goodness, that empowerment, that glory, sow that into a world system for a kingdom result. So Christians, we cannot check out on the election. If we want to see natural revival and reformation, in addition to prayer, we need to get involved. We need to invade every sphere of influence, run for local government, run for national government. But until you do, vote, vote, vote. If you're wrestling with the personalities, I get it. But take the personalities out of it and vote platform. And I will boldly say something that I didn't say four years ago because I didn't feel as strongly about it. I get why somebody might wrestle with Mr. Trump's personality. I personally think he needs a bit of a bulldog personality to deal with the things in the natural and in the spirit that are part of God's agenda for this nation. But I will also say, take his personality out of it. It gets really clear when you see one side is pro-God, pro-church, pro-Israel, pro-life, and the other side is anti all that and more. Vote righteousness not the righteous man, the most righteous agenda. And by the way, if you wrestle with Mr. Trump's personality and say, I can't vote for him because he's not perfect, the most perfect governmental leader God has ever worked through, who was written about as a great man, was an adulterer and a murderer, King David. I make no excuse for sin. I actually take a public stand for heroic holiness. I am not excusing wrong behavior, but I'm saying ultimately we will never have a perfect man or woman or perfectly godly man or woman to vote for. So in the interim, until Jesus himself comes and runs for president of the United States of America, vote for the godliest, most righteous platform. And we do have a platform that a flawed man is bringing forth that is pro-God, aggressively pro-God, pro-church, pro-Israel, and pro-life. Come on, church, get involved and vote. Come on, that's so good, Robert. That's so good. And, you know, regarding the debates, you know, like, um, I don't know why so many Christians expected President Trump to come out and act presidential. Because the guys never once pretended to act presidential. If there's one thing about President Trump is he's not going to perform in order to get votes. Um, he, he is not a performer. And the re- you say, well, what do you mean a performer? Well, you know performance because it's polished. And this guy is, see, the problem is we're used to politicians running for president. And, and President Trump is, is, the, is not a politician. He's a businessman. And so one of the things that we've got to realize is that 
President Trump has objectives and he is not going to make those objectives. You guys, we don't know what President Trump's real objectives are because if he wants $10,000, he's not going to ask for $10,000. He's going to ask for $100,000 and everybody's going to laugh at him. Everyone's going to say, this guy's asking for $100,000. Ha! Who does this clown think that he is? $100,000. Ha! Please. And guess what? President Trump will walk away from the table with the $10,000 that you wanted right up front. You see, a politician's going to say, we need $100,000. You know, that's how that's how politicians uh, uh, operate. But he is not a politician. And so he is not going to go. So people are like, ah, like he was just like, ah, he wasn't very presidential. He, listen, if you've been watching his rallies, it's the same President Trump at, a, at the rallies that we saw at the debate. And sure, it would have been great, you know, if he if he would have maybe been a little more prepared and had a couple had a couple of aces up his sleeves, that would have been. Great. But honestly, Robert, I don't know what you think about this, but I think Trump uh, accomplished exactly what he wanted to accomplish in that debate. And I think that people are like so disappointed, like, ah, but this is what happened in the first election. Everybody was like, what was that? Yeah, yeah, there's right. no way. Everybody kept saying there is no way. And uh, and the and, and the problem is, is that people don't really know who this guy is. And, and as long as you're looking at him as a politician, you're going to completely miss the brilliance of who this guy is. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And again, I mean, in my lifetime uh, and, and my Christian lifetime, which is only 17 and a half years, but um, I have never seen a more aggressively pro-God, pro-life, pro-church and pro-Israel platform and president unabashedly, unapologetically. Are there some rough edges to that? Yes. Um, but my goodness, vote platform, vote policy, vote for vote God, vote church, vote life, vote because you know we we're, we complain all the time about oh, I want to I want a president that would you know be that that's, that that has Christian values and that has family. We have one. Does he perfectly represent them? No, but he's willing to fight for them. And you know what? We are in a fight in this nation, and we as the Christian body will take care of the the fight in the spirit. Our weapons are not carnal, and we fight not against flesh and blood. But we, we do fight with weapons that are powerful in God for the pulling down of strongholds. The politicians that are going after the things that matter most to us, I would want one to be a brawler. Who do you want to fight with you? I want I want the Lord of glory, the, the Lord Almighty, the King of glory, the Lord invincible in battle. I know every battle I got. I've got the brawler of brawlers next to me, the one who's won all, done all, given all. Now, we can't have that in in politics, because it's a world system, we're going to have a flawed man or woman, but give me a flawed man or woman who's willing to brawl for the things that matter most to me. And I think we have that. And I think we need to grow up a little bit and not put an impossible standard on President Trump or any politician while also not excusing wrong behavior and praying for them and believing that we can all do better. But in the meantime, as we're praying for them, as we're watching a Saul become a Paul or fill in the fill in the, the, the Christian metaphor blank, we pray for him. But let's support somebody who's willing to fight for what we've been asking somebody to fight for. If we got a champion that doesn't look and sound like we wanted, let's just rejoice. We've got a champion and pray for that champion. Yeah, I'll, that's so good. I mean, I'll tell you what, like it wasn't that long ago that, um, you know, that that gay marriage was made uh, legal, you know, basically in our nation. And um, uh, despite 
uh, our, our vote, it was declared from the head of our, from our nation, you know, that there should be a redefining of what marriage is. And uh, which, which right there alone puts the government in a place where the government should never be, where it starts um, uh, at that point, um, under President Obama's leadership, at that point, the government now said, we are now the new state church. We are now the new church. Right. Because marriage is not an institution of, of a government. Marriage is the institution of religion. That even if you go to these, these little villages that have never heard the gospel, it's going to be the village shaman that does the yeah. marriage, not the village king. You know, it's, 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 it, it's always been a religious, sacred, holy institution. And then you had President Obama that, that basically said, I'm going to be the new pastor of America. And I institute that now it's okay for a man to be married to a man, a woman to be married to a woman. Uh, and the same thing when it comes to, uh, the pro-life conversation, like I'm, I'm seriously concerned with the amount of authority the government thinks that it has or should have. And I'm seriously concerned about the issues that are up, that are, that are up at this election that, that the culture says are so important when these are issues, the government has no business being involved in. And yeah. it's, it's convenient for a lot of Christians because it's like, as long as the government does their job, the church doesn't have to do their job. As long as the government takes care of the poor, the church doesn't have to take care of the poor. And so, um, yeah, man, this abortion thing, when you've got a country where it's legal to slaughter on average a million babies a year, you know, like it's legal to slaughter babies in the womb. And then we're willing to say, yeah, I don't have to look at that because he's a racist. Um, right. And, and, and you look at just some of the, it's, it's a problem, man. It's, it's, it's a huge problem. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I'm not a fatal, I, I'm an optimist and I believe that things are going to get better. I also, I also think that if you're in, in the Washington state, people are fed up, man. Like it is th this, this, uh, this defunding the police, um, I could use, uh, not nice words. It, it's, it's, it's rubbish. It is this whole place of that. We don't need to enforce law. And what's next? We don't even need, we don't even need law. I mean, it, and so it, it's, uh, man, it's, there is a, there is a malicious, sidious, Marxist agenda that is at work. And here's the thing. People think it's all about black and white right now. No, it is about, it, it, there is a, there is like an anti race. It's an anti-culture. The Marxist agenda wants to make us, wants to erase tribe, tribe, uh, 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 any sort of race, racial uh, celebration of who you are. The, the Marxist agenda wants to erase any sort of like one religion, one race, one everything, all under control of, of the government. And, and the, the strategy is to use anarchy to bring global peace. And, um, and, and that's where that's where there's there's this fight right now and a whole generation that's buying in to that philosophy and yeah. so people need to this is a lot bigger than trump versus biden this is so oh yeah much, this is so much bigger than that and check me if i'm wrong on this but my understanding of the basic definition of anarchy is an or like against or not and then archy from rule so anarchy is no rule um, no ruler, self-rule really is what the anarchists are for. It doesn't work as a system. So I see this as more than anarchy to bring state order, but sowing chaos and sowing fear to bring state order. That's and I've it. done That's a it. lot of work in Southeast Asia for six years in Cambodia, for many years, or say six years in Thailand, many years in Cambodia. 
when I was in Cambodia, I started to study. I could feel the wounds in the spirit of the nation. So I studied pretty, pretty well, study, read about and studied out what happened with the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. And I remember coming back from an extended trip in Cambodia and saying to my wife, Yuri, honey, I was reading another book about Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge on the flight back. And I'm concerned because the exact same language that the exact same language that that Marxist regime was using to come to power is the exact same language the aggressive progressives of the left are using now from being progressive to positioning state as family. They used to they used to uh, announce that your mother is not your mother. Your father is not the father, father, your state. Khmer Rouge is your mother. Khmer Rouge is your father. And this agenda, this 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 anti-God, anti-church, anti-life agenda goes even beyond breaking down of tribes, which you're right about. It wants to break down the core bonds of family That's right. wow. so that, I mean, look at what's going on with education right now where parents in, I think it was in California, but I'm not positive. I saw a story. Parents had to sign a waiver saying they, they would not monitor what was being taught through the computer to their children at home during this so that they couldn't interfere with, I'll use a strong word, but I believe it, the brainwashing and reconditioning. Yuri and I don't have kids, but we're very involved in our nieces and nephews' lives, and our sister and brother-in-law are very wonderful. They let us be part of their lives. They're right around the corner from us. We talked to them about it, and they said, we actually pulled our kid, uh, the oldest, from school. We're homeschooling her now because we refuse to not monitor. I said, good for you. So we, you're right. We are doing something way more than Trump versus Biden, Pence versus Harris, Republican versus Democrat. This is life versus death light versus darkness and again we war not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities but we need to everything we've talked about we need to be showing up as part of the solution now i know we're only through four darren should we do you want to do a part two sometime you know your audience better than i do so i don't know how long they can handle me oh man yeah no we, we go for a while Let, let's see what we can do here in the next 15 minutes all right, man. So number five, only wielding one edge of the sword. This one's really simple. What I'm noticing is as Christians and as human beings, we tend to be either or people. We, you know, we'll wield the edge of love and we need to. We should be uncompromising love, but we'll get we'll, we're comfortable with love, but we're uncomfortable with truth. So we'll say to somebody, let's take the LGBTQ community. We need to be showing up and loving them knowing God and we love them exactly as they are, exactly where they are, because that's what Jesus does. But in that, I see as compromising truth where we so connect with the heart of God, we forget the word of God. We so connect with the heart of God that we end up compromising truth in love by saying, God loves you. I love you. I'm uncomfortable telling you this is sin. So it's all okay. Or we'll do the opposite. We'll so wield the edge of truth. We'll so know the mind of Christ. We'll so know the word of God that we're the ones standing in the abortion clinic parking lot saying, you going into the abortion clinic, God hates you. You're going to burn in hell. Well, you are doing something that grieves God, but he doesn't hate you and he doesn't want you to go to hell. Is there a way to show up in truth and in love, in love and in truth with justice and mercy? Because when the victorious risen Lord reveals himself to the apostle John, who's matured from a son of thunder and sons of thunder, thunder with one edge of the sword or the other. 
He had matured into an apostle of love and love isn't just what God does. It's the fullness of who God is. So when we wield both edges of the sword, which is what the victorious risen Lord models, it's a two edged sword that comes out of his mouth. Now we can be part of the solution. The challenge is it's usually awkward and uncomfortable to wield both edges because I know there are friends that I've had for most of my life, my wife, friends since graduate school who will no longer be her friends because they were a lesbian couple. And when she found they, they researched me online and saw nothing about how I have said again and again and again, we must love the LGBTQ community. We must know they must know we love them and we want to connect with them and how I've served with the ladyboy community in Thailand and seen revival break out there because we refused to compromise love, but we also walked in truth. All they saw is that when I was asked, I did say, yes, I do believe according to the word of God, homosexuality is a sin. And I say this because any sin is like drinking poison. It will bring harm to you. And I love people enough to say, if you're asking me, is this poison? I'll tell you it's poison. I know, and I've even said, I know this is hard because I know the adulterer doesn't identify as an adulterer. The adulterer knows it's a sin they've committed. Whereas the LGBTQ community, we need to be even more loving because they identify, they think this sin is their identity. And I get why. I understand because one person even said to me, but I was bugged, made me this way. And I said, actually, I do believe you could have been born this way because it's a fallen world, but God didn't make you this way. But God loves you. So it's awkward. And we've had people reject us, fall away from us, where if we had just said, we love you, so no matter what, it doesn't matter, we'd still be friends and that'd be more comfortable, but it wouldn't be love. It wouldn't be serving them. So one of the mistakes we can't afford to make anymore is only wielding one edge or the other. The, the thing we talked about earlier on, the angry, judgmental words, those people are mostly wielding truth. Most of what they say is true, but they're only wielding one edge of the sword. So they're not bringing life. They're not bringing Jesus. They're not bringing light. They're bringing condemnation unto death and judgment and destruction, not life, uh, truth with love, which is life unto conviction, repentance, and becoming who you truly are in Christ. Ah, oh, so good. So good. So good. I'll throw out a couple of things too. You tell me what you think, Robert. When it comes to our missiology um, and our approach for missions, I think it's important that we understand that there's a like a process to salvation or consecration and that we are when we're ministering to a uh, to a somebody that's wrestling with same sex attraction, um, they need to meet Jesus's savior, the saving one. Because yeah. a lot of times we think that our that our religion is gonna is is gonna save people that our that our truth that our law is gonna save people, but our law is only gonna condemn people. So they need a savior. Right. They need Jesus. They don't need my church. They don't need Darren. My gosh, I can't save them. They need Jesus. And so we need to introduce people to Jesus as savior, right? And then once you get to know Jesus as savior, you start to come into the process. We don't like the word That's process it. because we're charismatic Christians where we want McDonald's Christianity, where we order it at window one, we get it at window two. So we think that people should should meet Jesus as savior and immediately they're going to be straight. And then we get disappointed when it doesn't happen that way. It can. There's there's stories, but that's usually not the the, the main thing in the same way. Uh, and let's just be real uh, in the same way that that a young man. 
that's overtaking with perversion and lust doesn't doesn't yeah. doesn't run to the altar and all of a sudden never to think another lustful thought again. So people, we, we need to introduce people to the Jesus, the loving, tender Savior who became a man, who dwelt among us, who became our sins, that we could become his righteousness. And then once we meet Jesus as as Savior, then we can meet him as Jesus is Lord. Yes. And so once you've been saved by him, now you can trust him and love him and have a, a relationship with him. The next step is to, not, it, he didn't just save you. Now he wants to be your loving master. He wants to be your father. Yeah. And he wants to be the Lord, which at that point means that we surrender everything. But as we all know, if we're all honest, we love to throw rocks at gays. But if we're all honest, that the, the understanding Jesus is Lord for all of us was a process. I didn't just sur- I didn't right. surrender everything to Jesus in a moment. It was it's, it is a process. And still to this day, there are times when Jesus says, hey, Darren, there's, a, there's an area you haven't surrendered to me. Are you going to trust me with this? And then I have to say, oh, no, I'm going to be my own Lord in that. Or, okay, Jesus, I trust you. Yeah. I'm going to give this to you. So that was the first thing. The other thing I was just going to mention real quick was in regards to grace and truth. Because, you know, the two sides of the sword. And yet, in the same way that a man and a woman uh, are two radically different compositions Ooh, yeah. in DNA, and yet they complement each other in this place of union, this is the same thing that exists between grace and truth. See, the problem is, is that because of what we experienced in the 2000s, and if we're honest, bro, this is my own take, man, I think that a lot of ministers in the body of Christ got so hung up with the hyper grace thing, like as far as attacking it. And the reason why I say it is because yeah. I've never met a Christian that's ever said to me, there's no such thing as sin. I can't, oh. I cannot sin and I, and I do not have to repent. I've never heard a Christian say you really haven't. No, um, uh, that's cool. I've had many people come at me with that. Okay. And I've never heard that. And I've never heard a preacher say that. And there so, you go. And so I've never heard. And so I've never actually had someone say, yeah, I can't sin, but that's just me. I know right on. My, my friends have, but I've never actually heard yeah. a, a, a preacher say it. And, and, and so, and the reason why I say it is because maybe that's happening everywhere. And maybe I'm just super sheltered. But we've, we've spent so much time glorifying a heresy where right. we're pulling people to take, maybe we've done that in order to encourage holiness. But what's happened is, unfortunately, bro, this, I think grace has gotten a bad rap. And mm. what's happened is that because we've taught this, the danger of grace, of hyper grace, the danger of it, we have basically, um, this is what I think. And I want to hear your thoughts on this, Robert. We have basically taught people that grace is merely the unmerited kindness of God. Like, mm. like without saying that, without saying it, but when saying hyper grace and license to sin and all this stuff, it's almost like what we're saying is what grace is, is unmerited kindness from God. So if, and when you sin, God's going to put up with it because he still loves you because of his son, he's obligated to stay in relationship because what his son did, like he's not happy with right. sin, but he's not going to break covenant because what his son did, but he's not really happy. Yeah. But yeah. that's not grace. Grace is divine enablement to live up to God's righteous standard. Grace is divine totally. enablement to choose not to sin. Uh, uh, yep. So the, they work beautifully. It's the husband and the wife. It's it's the it's the opposites contrasting and coming together. It's this place of we cannot be holy without being empowered by divine supernatural grace. So, bro, I feel like uh, the Lord, awesome. the Lord's stirring up in me, man. Even though this might not be popular in our stream, I really want to start going after grace again. I really want to start teaching on grace again. 
He goes, bro, if we are teaching holiness without grace, we are going to create a frustrated uh, uh, people that are operating in self-righteous performance. And we know that that smells to God like re like reeky, bloody rags. And there's a lot of that happening right now. It's being called holiness. It's being called like a comeback to Jesus movement. It's temporary. Really? I see an expiration date on it. We know true grace because we'll become far more humble, far more correctable, far more teachable. Um, uh, yeah. and, and, and we will radiate holiness without having to wear a holiness t-shirt. I love that. That's great. I think that's great. You know, and this is coming from somebody who one of my core messages is heroic holiness. That's right. But the reason we call it heroic holiness is it's all rooted in the certainty of sonship, the certainty of relationship. Good. And that, that heroic holiness is has nothing to do with performance, religion, or legalism. It has nothing to do with if I'm holy, then God will bless me. It's heroic because we realize we operate in the fullness of our born again identity in Christ as its dominion stewards in the earth by choosing to operate in holiness from identity, not for identity for impact or for, to create impact, not to be empowered for impact. Good. But I love what you said. And you know, that brings us right into number six, which because I have had people when I talk about heroic holiness, and I talk about Romans 5, 15 through 19, that shows that every single one of us has a global ministry through the choices we make. Good. And when we choose righteousness, in the power of the Holy Spirit, not to get something from God, but to operate fully in all that he's blessed us with, we see that when we choose righteousness, it impacts all of creation. Because Romans 5, 15 through 19 is all about sons, is all about the children of God. Because the first son, Adam, chose to disobey, unrighteousness entered the earth. Not he was made unrighteous, he was, but it actually entered the earth. Right. But because the second son, Christ Jesus, which is the position we now have in him as the son, as the bride, when he chose righteousness, it didn't say he was made righteous, he already was. It says righteousness was made available to all. When we choose patience, when we choose peace, when we choose love, when we choose truth, when we choose kindness, when we choose righteousness of any kind, it's released out into the earth. And I have had people, and I love hearing your perspective, because if we get buffeted with something, mm -hmm. it can take up too much of our, 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 our hard drive. But I have had people come at me and say, there's no such thing as sin. I can't sin. And I, one of them was a leader of a church who had a great discussion with me. He wasn't a jerk about it. He said, are you open to discussion? I said, absolutely. I love talking through these things. And he said, well, my challenge with you is sin doesn't exist. Jesus dealt with it at the cross. I cannot sin. And I said, you know what? I bet we're talking semantics. Let's look at it from this. Because if you're saying Jesus dealt with sin at the cross, I completely agree with you. If you're saying if I sin or do what is labeled as sin, God still loves me. I'm still in relationship with him. I absolutely agree with you. But Christians need to wake up to how powerful we are in the earth. And when we choose darkness, darkness is released. We empower powers and principalities before powers and principalities empower sin. And I said, here's, here's the example I'll give you because I think it's just semantics that we're wrestling over, but it's an important perspective. Are you married? And he said, yes, I've been married and I can't remember. It was like 32 years or something. I said, let me ask you this. If you go out today and cheat on your wife and she finds out about it, will it affect your marriage? And he said, well, of course. I said, dude, call it sin, call it adultery, call it whatever you want. It has impact in our lives, in the earth and in our families. Do you agree with that? He said, absolutely. 
I said, well, then why are you telling me sin doesn't exist? He said, because I'm still forgiven. I said, okay, we are talking semantics. I said, I think your semantics are a little dangerous because it can make people think that sin hasn't, doesn't exist. So those wrong choices don't have impact, but I hear your heart. I love your heart. I agree with your heart, but I would suggest like you're asking me to review some things. I will. I'm asking you to review not your theological position, but how you communicate it and whether it empowers us to be solutions in the earth or it empowers us to potentially feel like there's no ramifications for the decisions we make when free will is not only a gift, it's a power and it's a responsibility that God has blessed us with. Robert, was he saying that there was no such thing as repentance? Did he not believe in any form of repentance as well? He felt that, that once you repent, you come into repentance is saying yes to Jesus Christ to his mind. And so you repent of your past sins. And then G once you are saved that you cannot sin, there's no such thing as sin in your life. And I tried to unpack with him my personal theological position because he brought up, um, if you are, if you said, yeah, I can't remember the scripture. I'm not going to quote it exactly. This was uh, over a year ago, but you know, if you're truly saved, you cannot sin. And I said, I believe that about our born again spirit, but I, I withdraw love and traffic all the time. And that is a sin. I don't take it lightly. I, I have, I'm working with the Holy Spirit, so I'm not releasing irritation in the community. I'm not condemned. I'm not oppressed. I'm not under the law. I just know how powerful I am as a Christian. So if I choose irritation, impatience, selfishness in traffic, and get irritated, I realize I'm releasing darkness into my community. Now, I'm still a son. I'm completely forgiven. The blood of Jesus works. I cancel that. And then I choose to release patience and kindness and love. And I start praying for the people and praying. And I said, do you see my shift here of knowing how powerful we are as Christ? That's the element I think you're missing. So for him, repentance was simply what you do to come into salvation. Once you're saved, there's no longer sin. So I don't yeah. think he does. I'm, this isn't verbatim, but from our conversation, I would say he doesn't think you can sin. So there's once you're saved, so there's no need to repent once you're saved. Yeah. Now, what I love about what you're saying. Well, OK, so there's also the whole thing that love covers a multitude of sins. And that yeah. is uh, that's actually quite dangerous. And so um, for that, you know, for that reason, there is a place where. Uh, where we need to honor the law of God. We need to honor the rhythms of God. We need to, uh, you know, uh, because to the degree that we can honor the rhythms of God, uh, there's a beautiful accountability. We don't, the law doesn't condemn us any longer because, because of what Christ Jesus has done, but he did not come to abolish the law. He came to satisfy it, that the law has been satisfied. And yet there is still the invitation of the father to partner with the rhythms of his righteousness um, uh, I think, you know, it was, it was just the other, well, that's good. You know, um, you, uh, Eugene Peterson and the, the, the message, um, he writes, I, I forget where it's at. You probably know, but he, he writes about the unforced rhythms of grace. And, and that's where, as we learn to just like David, David had this down. He was like, I meditate on your law. It was almost like when I look at the, the, the your beautiful rhythms of holiness, as I dwell on that, I get a glimpse into who you really, really are. And we don't have to let who he is condemn us, but we let who he is 
it, it invites us because we are now the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And Paul would say, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? He says, you're damned if you do. You don't even, uh, you don't even understand what this, what this is, that there is this beautiful place of partnering and honoring the, the holiness and the righteousness. And, you know, that, that's yeah. what, that's what makes me concerned is when I hear holiness and righteousness, um, almost like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're like, yeah. You're like yeah. no, 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 no. That's not what it is. It's, this is a, right. ro- this is a romance. This is a marriage. This is a, I don't, I, I, I honor my wife through being, through honoring our covenant, which is there's, there's unspoken law there, but I don't even think about, I don't even think about violating that because of my love for her. And I feel like, I feel like, man, exactly. as we're, as we're wooed back into the intimacy between the bride and the bridegroom, holiness, um, this uncompromising holiness, it'll be the effect. And I think that if we, if we make holiness the goal, we might be like, ah, but if we can make Christ I hear you. and falling in love with him, then holiness will be this beautiful uh, effect. I you agree. Know? And when we talk heroic holiness with men on the front lines, Robert Hodgkin ministry, stuff I do with Patricia King, when I talk heroic holiness, it's exactly that. It's not a performance thing. It's to wake us up to how powerful we are as Christians. Because uh, several years ago, I had an encounter with the Lord because the, the Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship and the great outpouring of the Father's heart and the love and the grace and all of that happened before I was a Christian, but was still going on. So I kind of got born again into that. I got born again through a sovereign visitation of the Lord showing up to someone who had mocked and persecuted him and his church. And all he declared to me was, I refuse not to love you. It was a revelation of love and desire for relationship. It was an invitation into that romance you're talking about. So I asked the Lord, I was like, okay, so for almost 30 years now, there's been this great outpouring of your love. I'm an unto guy. In, in relationship, I love the unto. So I said, Lord, is it is it simply the wooing or is there an unto? And immediately he gave me this scripture. If you love me, you will obey my word. Wow. But what was neat is he also showed me the trap in that. He's like, if you don't really understand my love and that you love me because I first loved you, this idea of if you love me, you'll obey my word will become religion. Mm-hmm. And you'll think you need to perform to prove your love. But if you know you love me because I first love you, then it's this circuit, this do loop, this Mobius strip of intimacy deepening and revolving and going deeper and more intimate. And then from that, exactly as you already beautifully said, so I don't need to repeat it, we're stepping into a fullness of our identity to 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 release something into the earth. We're not performing to earn or get something from him. Oh, I love it, Robert. I love it, love it a lot. All right, so this this number seven, seven ties in as they all kind of tie together, having such a revelation of the victorious Christ that we forget the crucified Christ. Mm. And now, and and I am all about living from victory. I wrote a book called Winning the Battle for Your Mind, Will, and Emotions to teach us how we can live from victory. The final chapter in that book is titled living from victory because we have the victory and that whole book is about how to unlock the supernatural power of our mind will and emotions to access the more of god we already have in him and see it made manifest so i'm all about the victorious christ and living on the other side of the cross and outside of the 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 empty tomb yet one of the things i'm noticing everything we're talking about right now ties into it 
whether it's not giving into disappointment or not giving into temptation, whatever it is, we need to remember Jesus said, if you want to follow me, if you want to have impact in the earth, which is what I'm raising you up for. Because remember, when we say yes to Jesus, I asked him this once a couple of years ago, Darren. Why, when I said yes to you, didn't you just bring me home to glory? I know it's better there. I want to be there. And he, he made it clear. He said, because you're the body of Christ in the earth now. I've said, when, when he got to heaven, he sat down because his job was done. Ours just began. We are to be the dominion stewards in the earth. And one of the main ways we do that is remembering what he said. If you wish to follow me as the body to have impact in the earth, like I'm teaching you in the power of my Holy Spirit through your relationship with my father and his kingdom, you must take up your cross and die to yourself daily. Wow. Not take up his cross, not become our own saviors. Like we just fully covered. This isn't a performance message. But remember that one of the most important weapons we have is we don't give place to fear and all of its manifestations of darkness and death because that's not the spirit we've been given. We've been given one of love and in that love power and the way we choose to operate in that power is through self-control or some translations say a sound mind. But remembering the crucified Christ is remembering it is a privilege to lay down our lives in a situation, deny the flesh. And it's basically New Testament, um, the New Testament theology of, of, of uh, necromancy, being anti-necromancy. In the Old Testament, necromancy is don't commune with the dead and wicked spirits. I learned this from Dr. Clarice Fluitt. In the New Testament, necromancy is communing with your old dead man wow. and bringing him up out of the grave. The way we avoid that, the way we live in the fullness of what we have is in those moments when we sense temptation or disappointment or anger or irritation or anything that would release darkness, not light. We need to remember that we have the power in the crucified Christ to deny that and live in victory. Amazing. Amazing. And the big one now. Yeah. You've yeah. Saved, you saved the best for last. Oh, crying out eight. for more of the Holy Spirit. Pardon? Yeah, number, number eight, eight, the new beginning one. Crying out for the Holy Spirit. More crying out for more of the Holy Spirit, but ignoring his nudges and leadings. And really that wraps up everything we've been talking about, Darren. I mean, we should be crying out for more of the Holy Spirit. That's theologically inaccurate, but God loves it. <laughs> it's theologically inaccurate because he holds nothing back from us. One of the original lies from the enemy that that gets us to rebel is that God's keeping something from us. He has given us everything, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have been given the spirit without measure. So we cry out for more of the Holy Spirit. And we should, because what we're really crying out for isn't for more of the Holy Spirit, but more awareness of That's him, right. manifestations of the fullness of what we already have. That's what we're crying out for. And the way we get there, I believe, because it is a romance, is little nudges, little leadings that we tend to ignore in all the areas we're talking about. Don't be disappointed in this season, Holy Spirit told me. In any moment, I could be very, it's very easy to ignore that nudge and go, have you not seen what's going on? I am going to be disappointed. But to respond to that and say, Holy Spirit, I want to partner with you in this nudge. Help me step back from that. The way we grow in intimacy with him or, or revelation, knowledge, empowerment, experience is through intimacy. 
I always give the example now this year, not as much because of the Rona, but before that, I was on a plane almost every week. I was going overseas two or three times a week. If I came home from a long trip of two or three weeks, when I got home, if my wife was right there, I ran up to her and hugged her and whispered in her ear, oh, I love you and I missed you. Oh, I don't scream in her ear, you know, all that because it would push her away. This is something Bobby Connor, who you know well, I heard him say this years ago. One of the questions I love to ask all the prophets is, what's the major way you hear from God? And we don't have time to unpack this, but every single seasoned, experienced, acknowledged prophet, I have ever asked that question except one. One didn't answer this, but every other one said, yeah, open-eyed visions, yep, all that stuff, audible voices. But by far, the way I hear from God the most is the still small voice. Bobby actually added this and he said, the longer I'm at it, the stiller and quieter it gets. And what I've realized is that's not me hearing less. That's him inviting me to deeper and deeper and deeper intimacy because the stiller the voice is, the more you need to lean into him. And this is the season to be listening for and leaning into the nudges and not ignoring them. Or the little corrections, like you said, where even me too, 17 and a half years into my walk with God, I want the little tiny whispers of the Holy Spirit of, hey, we both know that's not what you're really like. Do me a favor, go clean that up with that person. And then let me minister to your heart in that area. It's a nudge. I'm one of the leaders of our ministry. And our team will tell you, if I make a mistake, I can't wait to go clean it up. I'm not embarrassed to admit to somebody, man, I'm sorry. The pressure got to me. I spoke to you out of frustration, not out of love. I totally owe you an apology. Will you please forgive me? And our team's amazing. We forgive each other all the time because we all know we're human and we're all going after God together. But as a leader, it'd be very easy for me to rationalize and justify. They didn't get this out on time. They didn't do this. They should have known to do that. They needed to hear that I was frustrated with them. No, they didn't. They might have needed a little correction and support and focus on how we can all do our jobs better, but they need to hear that in love, not in frustration. So there's no point in me. If I want more of the Holy Spirit, I need to understand the way we tend to get there is by listening to those little nudges and whispers of, hey, you owe, you owe him an apology and not hardening my heart to that, but going, uh, Gosh, you're right, Lord, Holy Spirit, thank you. I do. And I'll go back and I'll clean it up. And the thing that we've learned in our ministry, it's not embarrassing. Not only as a leader, are you not thought less of, but you're actually helping establish a realm of honor, a realm of kingdom values. And we look at each other with even greater respect, honor and love, because that's kingdom when we're all willing to walk according to that plumb line. But in this season, if Holy Spirit convicts you, of, hey, you know, you just spoke about, he did this to me. You just spoke about Mrs. Pelosi with dishonor. You can disagree with her, but don't release darkness and dishonor. And I actually had to go to somebody and actually called them up. I didn't go to them and say, hey, you know what? I owe you an apology. I was kind of venting frustration about Mrs. Pelosi. I don't agree with her position. I think we need to take a strong stand against what she's standing for. But me getting irritated or frustrated doesn't do any good. Let's co-labor together with the character and nature of him who is the truth when we stand for truth. Amazing. Robert, I so honor the apostle call on your life. Uh, this conversation is full of that frequency and your desire 
to see the body encouraged and built up to be edified like a building being constructed and not being torn down. And I just love that uh, everything that you say is just filled with such grace and such love. And I love the way that you process and think, the way that you approach a conversation and, and just, just who you are. I want to encourage everyone to look at the show notes, whether you're listening or watching this on YouTube, because we're going to put all of, uh, you're going to want to follow Robert on Instagram. Uh, if you, if that's your thing, uh, or if you're a man and you're listening to this or watch this and you're not already a part of the men on the front lines community, you're going to want to join that community because there's all kinds of empowering, uh, uh, rich conversations that are being hosted. Uh, on there. Um, and so anyways, I will put all the links so that everyone can connect um, with Robert and uh, and the amazing things that they are doing there with Men on the Front Lines, with Shiloh, uh, with at Patricia King Ministries. Uh, Robert, you're, 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 you're a true friend. I love who you are. Thanks for this incredible conversation today. Thank you so much for giving me the time and I love you. And um, I really appreciate all you guys are doing. And thanks for sharing your audience with me. God bless all y'all. Awesome. Let's let's do it again, my friend. Podcasts are definitely trending right now. There are so many brand new podcasts that are hitting the market. And I think that iTunes is kind of overwhelmed. And one of the ways that iTunes aggregates what's hip and relevant from the rest of the noise that's hitting the web is through ratings and reviews. A bunch of you have already taken the time to leave a rating and a review of this podcast. And I just wanted to say thanks. You guys are incredible and you're so supportive and I love you. And if you haven't had a chance to take that minute or two to leave a review. If you do that, that'd be incredible. And I've created a shortcut to get you there. It's thedarrenshow.com. That's thedarrenshow.com. You can give it one star and that means that you think it's kind of lame. Or you can give it five stars and that means that you think this thing be dope, be tight, be off the chain. So if you would take the minute or two to leave a review, that would be mighty fine of you. Again, it's thedarrenshow.com. Thanks guys.